I guess one of the great tensions of our lives as Christians is that kind of tension between um, how much we get involved in the world around us and how much we kind of withdraw from the world around us. So do you go to the bar? Do you go to the club after work on a Friday night for drinks with with your uh, work colleagues? And I guess we inform um, our response to that question with, with the possible outcomes. You know, what, do we ex- what should we expect if we do go and what should we expect if we don't go? What will people say if we do go? What will people say if we don't go? Now here, I think, is why this passage is so helpful and so practical for us today in London. Uh, Because as I've read those verses, just look, cast your eyes down to verse 11 and 12 again, and you'll see a a tension which the Christian life, you will have felt. Look at it. It says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers, to what? To abstain. To abstain from civil desires which war against soul. And then verse 12, to live. To live such good lives among the pagans. And do you see the tension? We're both to abstain from some things, but also to live, to live lives amongst our friends and our work colleagues. And what should we expect as a result? Go to the end of verse 12 and you'll see. You'll be accused of doing wrong. Sounds good life, doesn't it? You'll be accused of doing wrong, but also there'll be a recognition of your good deeds as they glorify God. And I guess that's a great tension that many of us, if we're Christians, will face uh, every day as we live our lives. That how much should we abstain from things and how much should we get involved in things in this life? And churches down history have got this so wrong so often. Either by blending into the culture completely, and that's what we might describe as a liberal church very often. Or withdrawing, complete, withdrawing from a society and withdrawing from a culture. And we might describe that as a more fundamental church. Both do the same thing. Both, both do that action because of fear. Fear of what people might say and fear of what people might do. But Peter here is now urging the church, not just individuals, that's been the focus of chapter one. Now it's the church, the corporate body, not to go either way, not to... Just abstain, not to just do as everyone else is doing. Now he's saying, abstain and live. Do both. Hold both of those things in tension in your life. Now that is where we're going to end up at the end of the talk today in this passage. But Peter can't urge the church to live that way without, if you like, giving us the, the way of the, the ability to do it. And how, he, how that is possible, because it's a tough life sometimes to live out that life, abstaining and living in the world. So what Peter does, he constructs a picture for us. If you like, a picture of the church, and that's what we get in verses 4 through to 10. We see the nature of the church to begin with. The nature of this body that we're sad amongst now. And therefore, the nature, that, that nature gives us the power to live in this world as well. But then we get two applications, and we'll come to those right at the end. In verses 9 to 10, we'll see the purpose of the church. And then lastly, in verses 11 and 12, very briefly, we will see the goal of the church in holding those two things together, abstaining, but also living in this world. Firstly then, let's just go to the nature of the church. You'll see that on your outlines. 
Uh, it's our main point today with a few kind of subsections as well. The church is the new temple of God we've put down there. Now Peter uses these images of stones. You heard it in the reading. You can see it there in front of you. Image of stones in the temple of God. So look at verse 4. It says, we come to Jesus who is the living stone. The definite articles used there. And as we do, we become living stones like him built into this spiritual house. That's the image being used. The reason we become living stones is because we become like him. His life is counted as ours because of what he's achieved for us on the cross. Now, no longer is the the temple then filled with gold and precious stones to reflect God's glory. The temple of God, the new temple of God, is filled with Christians. We are the temple of God, if you like, being built into this temple to reflect the glory of God. Peter is continually pushing his readers to see that this old way of drawing near to God, that is going to the temple using priests as intermediaries, that that way is gone. Something new has happened. And we have become the new place where God dwells, where his glory is reflected and made known. But God has always done that to to a degree in different ways. But he's he's always dwelt amongst his people to, to make his glory known. Let's think back, right back to the Exodus. And right there, God has dwelt amongst his people. First, he has a pillar of cloud by day, fire by night. And then later on, he filled the tabernacle under Moses in Exodus 33. Later, Solomon's temple in 1 Kings. Then he departed from the temple in Ezekiel because of the sin of the people when they went into exile. But then, after God's exile, do you remember Haggai a few weeks ago? They were rebuilding a temple with Zerubbabel and all those other names. And uh, there they were, and the prophecy came in chapter 2 that the latter glory of this house should be greater than the former. There was something to come, they're saying. God was going to dwell in his temple again. That was the prophecy. But God never descended to fill that temple as he did the former temple. And when you get to Malachi, there was a prophecy. They waited 400 years to to be fulfilled. In Malachi, it said, the Lord who you seek, this the dwelling of God who you seek, will suddenly come into his temple. And then you get to Luke 19. And surprisingly enough, when Jesus was brought into the temple... His presence, it says, was the greater glory of the temple. In the New Testament, you see, Jesus is the new and better temple of God. The place where God dwells amongst his people and his glory is revealed. At Pentecost, the dwelling place is not only with Christ, but now the spirit is given and placed into the hearts of believers so that we become the dwelling place of God and where his glory is revealed. I kind of want to wrap up the story because when you get to Romans 8, which we were looking at last week, it kind of comes full circle. Because when Jesus returns, the whole earth will be redeemed. And that, therefore, when Christ returns, that temple where God dwells will then be the whole earth. Because there will be nowhere where it won't be inappropriate for, to reflect God's glory. We're looking at that in Romans 8 later on. So you you see, in anticipation today of that great event to come, we Christians are given the privilege of offering ourselves now as, as sacrifices to God, the place where God dwells, and we can reflect his glory through offering these sacrifices of our lives, Romans 8 tells us. Romans 12 tells us, sorry. 
So the church, you see, we are these living stones of God's temple where God dwells by a spirit. But we see here, do you notice it says we are being built? You notice that? It's, a, it's actually a present progressive kind of tense being used there. It's saying you are and you always will be being built as a living stone into this temple where God's glory dwells and you reflect God's glory. It's, um, notice also that it's a plural. We are being built. It's very interesting that, isn't it? Because you can never look at the, the, the temple of God, the, the church, Christians together, as an individual thing. And that's very difficult in the society we live because we live in such an individualistic society. See, as living stones, we are dependent on one another. If one of us is struggling, then to, to a degree, all of us will be struggling. And this blows apart our understanding of church very often. We, we are a corporate community. There is interdependence here. And I hope that helps us realise that if we're being built into the lives of the people, that is the church, we have a part to play. We all do. We are stronger as a group, as a whole. If one of us leaves, then it's going to hurt. You take a stone out of a building, there is damage, isn't there? Now, that's, I'm not going to be a kind of cultish leader here and say no one can leave the church whatsoever, you know. Nothing like that, okay? But, you know, if people move house, people move jobs, that's absolutely fine and normal and right and appropriate and don't hear me wrong there at all. But, you know, as living stones, as God building us together as a corporate body, well, and that is the place where God inhabits by his spirit. Therefore, you cannot leave that living structure without it taking its effect. It will have an effect on everyone if one stone is removed. Let me give a very poor and weak um, illustration from the world of sport for just a moment, if I can. If a, if a, if a player goes off, uh, you know, off through injury, ta- is taken off the pitch, then of course, at that point, you know, it's, it's not only, well, the player is hurt, isn't it, aren't they? But it's not only the player that is hurt, the team is hurt because you no longer have the skills and the abilities of that player on the pitch. That's a fair assumption, isn't it? But there's more than that. It is not just that you've removed that individual from a group of individuals. You've moved an individual from a team. And therefore, you've removed an individual who who can get more out of that player on the right wing or the left wing than, than anyone else can as well. You see, if you remember, David Beckham was like this all the time. If you took David Beckham off the pitch, it was better to have David Beckham on crutches in the centre spot um, than it was to have him off the pitch because he just inspired everyone around him, didn't he, when he played? He was one of those kind of people. It's a similar picture. If you take someone out, it's not only you're removing their skills and their abilities, you're removing their ability to make that person shine and make that person shine. And likewise in the church... We can only by ourselves know a portion of who God is and what he has done for us and how he works amongst his church. And if you disengage from that living structure of which you're being built into by God, then you are disengaging yourself from this living, these living stones that, that have what you need to know about God. 
There are people around you right now who have greater understanding, who have greater depth of insight, who have greater experience of God in various areas of life, and you need them, and I need them. You have what I need of God, and I have what you need of God, and we work together. We've been built together as living stones. So the church by its nature is utterly communal. I'll just give you a very practical example. Think of, think of home group, shall we, for a moment. Many of you are involved in the little Bible study groups that we have on a Tuesday night. Now you'll be thinking you've had a, you've had a terrible couple of days at the beginning of the week. You're utterly exhausted. Oh, I'm not, you know, I won't go. Take your mindset out of the individual just for one moment if you can. See, by not going, you are withdrawing yourself from a group. That, and you're withdrawing not only yourself sitting down, you know, more biscuits for everyone else. You, you're, you're actually withdrawing all the gifts that you've been given by God. All the insight you've been given by God. All the struggles that you've been given by God. And you are withdrawing them from that group. They need you. And you need them. See, so you take a stone out of a building and what happens? gets wobbly, loses its strength. You are being built up together by God. Now, here's the critical thing. On what? On what? See, the foundation stones of any building are utterly critical, aren't they? And if we're to live in this world uh, as the church appropriately, to grow together as we're being built by God, we need to make sure that our foundation is solid. Now, we have no hope. We have no ability to do verses 9 to 12, none at all, if our foundation is weak. We need power, and we need a powerful example, which is why the church is built on, and I've put our second little sub-point there, on the foundation of Christ. The church is built on Christ. In Christ alone, our hope is found. See, the most important of all the stones that you, when you, I'm, I'm not a builder, I'm kind of looking at a builder a little bit, um, you know, the most important stone when you're building is the cornerstone, the, the, the first foundation stone that is laid. And in ancient buildings, this stone would be placed at the, the architecturally strongest point of the building. And the whole alignment of the building, the whole strength of the building relied solely on this one cornerstone as it was described and we see here in our passage today that Christ is that precious cornerstone of the church that is he gives us us its strength our strength and our alignment our direction he's the chosen precious stone precious cornerstone of uh, verse 6 as you see it there Now, Jesus is that living foundational cornerstone, but he's described, have you seen it, in two ways. Cast your eyes back to verse 4, if you can, because it is the launch pad of the rest of of this passage. And it's really helpful because Christ, the exalted, living cornerstone, look how he is accepted. Well, he's rejected, firstly, by men, but he is chosen by God, rejected by men, chosen by God. Now, the term, the term rejected here, it's kind of a building site talk. It's really common language in the original. And uh, it, it basically was as a term used 
by builders. They would examine a stone and they say, yeah, it's rubbish. It's got a crack in it. Get it out. They rejected it. After examination. And we do that every day. The whole world does that every day with Jesus. You, you examine him and you say, do you want to live your way today? Do I want to make you, you my cornerstone or do I want to make something else my cornerstone? And you either reject it or you choose him. See, we can, have choo- we can choose to have Jesus as our cornerstone and we can make something else our cornerstone. And we all do. We all depend on something, don't we, in our lives. And often that's, us, that's just us, isn't it? Ourselves. For example, when, you know, when things get tough, you can go through all sorts of stuff in your lives. And you know, when stuff really, really gets hard, you, you can sort of say, well, you know, actually, you kind of vindicate yourself, don't you? So by saying, oh, I'm a good mum. You know, I'm a good banker. I've got that much money in my, in my bank account. You know, life is hard, but the thing that gives me stability, the thing that gives me strength is the fact I'm a good mum. I've got this wealth. I've got that job. But what happens when that thing that, you, that gives you strength, that cornerstone that you've put in your lives, what happens when that goes? When you do lose the job, when the money goes, or when you haven't been a great mum that week? Well, your whole life shakes at that point, doesn't it? If you've made your job the cornerstone, the, the, the thing that gives you strength, then your whole life shakes. And essentially you become just a crumbling mess. See, we all have a cornerstone. I remember when I got to university, I went to this university, we did sports, I did sports science, and it was like Loughborough, everyone's really good and everything. We all went, and we all sat down together, and we were going, we're the best. And we were, in our minds. I literally walked into the room and said, I am the best at everything. I was so arrogant. I said, hey, hey, I am amazing. By the way, did you not know that? And then you go... I was sat next to an Olympian called Adam Duke here and, and, and another Olympian here. And I sort of went, ooh, I'm not really, am I? I really am not the best. But every one of us realised at the same point, we're not the best. And it's strange, isn't it? I wonder whether that might be going on with a quite a famous Paralympian at the moment in his heart and his mind. Because when you realise you're not the best... And if you've made the cornerstone of your life, the strength, the, the, the kind of direction of your life, all to be, uh, you know, focus on, I'm the best sportsman. When you realise you're not, it crushes you. You're destroyed. You, you, you've got nothing to stand on. What if you build your life on the attention of others? What if you build your life on the affections um, of the opposite sex, maybe. What happens when you don't get it? It's crushing, isn't it? See, we all build our lives on a cornerstone, and the point of this passage is this. Make sure your cornerstone is Christ. Because if he isn't, then, then verse 6, well, it's a sobering warning. Look at it. The one who trusts in him will will never be put to shame. What if you don't trust in him? Well, you will be put to shame. Practically, you'll constantly feel like a, a, a failure because you'll replace that cornerstone that's failed you with another cornerstone and then another cornerstone and then another cornerstone. 
And everyone will crumble under a weight of expectation. Only one cornerstone remains strong. And we see in verse 7, you see, it's actually capstone, cornerstone. It kind of translated there. That if it's capstone, he's exalted, vindicated. As you see there in verse 7. So do not reject the only safe, true, solid cornerstone of your life. His name is Jesus Christ. And if you do, if you reject him, please do look at the warning in verse 8. See, you have a choice. You can either build your life on Jesus, the cornerstone, or you can encounter the stone, the rock, that will make you fall away from God's love into his eternal judgment, which is what we see in verse 8. It's a terrifying thought. So, third little point on that. I'll just simply say, come to the precious cornerstone. Come to him. That's what it says back in in verse 4, doesn't it? As you come to him. See, you've got to do more than just build your life on this foundation, cornerstone of Christ. You must find him. You must come to him. And and what's it say? You must find him precious, verse 6. He's the precious cornerstone. And he must be precious as, as kind of life itself, really. You know, if you were able to buy your life, if someone was um, pointing a, a gun at your head and said, you know, uh, you give me everything, you sell your car, you, you, you give me all your clothes, stick them all on eBay and let's get all the cash from that as well. Yeah, let's, let's sell everything that you possibly have and give me all the money and I'll, I won't pull the trigger. You'd do it, wouldn't you? It doesn't matter if you have to live on the streets. You want to live. It's that precious. Life is precious. Well, Jesus is infinitely more precious than that. Everything is expendable in comparison to him. And that is why Peter says in verse 4, come to him. Because that's where you get life. Living stones. So it's, it's a dependency on him, absolutely is, to, to come to him. That's what you're saying, I need you, I come to you. But it's more than that, you've got you've to find him precious. You've got to love him more than anything else in this life. You've got to adore him, and that sounds utterly weird for most of us blokes, doesn't it? But that's what it's saying, you've got to go everything, your whole heart. But let me say, I don't think it is if we consider who Jesus really is. I don't think it's that strange. Because he is the one who was rejected and chosen by God to face the judgment for yours and my sin in our place on a cross. And why did he do that? Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Because you are precious to him. More precious than you will ever know. And when you see how precious you are to Jesus, perhaps then you begin to see how precious he truly is. And it's only then you'll begin to see how it is possible to do verses 9 to 12. It is only when you know you are utterly accepted by God, totally affirmed by God, infinitely precious to God, only then can you begin to start living as an alien and stranger, as verse 11 says. Because, you see, who cares about the opinions of those people out there if you have all the love of the king? Is he precious to you?
You are certainly precious to him. And if he is, verse 9 to 12 are possible. Let's look at those very quickly as kind of two applications uh, to finish if we can. Because uh, they, they do look onerous at, at points, verse 9 to 12. But they do become a delight when you notice how precious Jesus really is. First, um, really, um, as Christians, uh, we're the new temple of God. And we, we have a purpose, that is to declare the praises of God. Just cast your eyes down from verse 9 to 10. We could spend a month on these verses. They are so dense, but we've got about three minutes. I think the contrast is striking. Look at verse 9. It begins with that word, but. Look back one verse and you see that there are those who stumble and fall. But, Peter says, verse 9, says, you're a chosen race. That is to say, you were chosen. If you're a Christian here today, you were chosen before the beginning of time. To be one of God's people. He says a royal priesthood, doesn't he? A holy nation. We're not talking ethnic, geographical group as it was in the the Old Testament. We're talking about a people who were in a covenant relationship with God. Basically that covenant means that God is on your side. He's got you. You're safe. He says a people belonging to God. That is saying... You are his possession for his glory. You've been bought with a massive price. His own son's blood. That is, you've been bought for a purpose. This is padded out at the end of verse 9. And Peter is saying to the Christians, you you are all these wonderful things. Why? What's the purpose of that salvation? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter, again, he's reassuring them that they are these new people of God. And verse 10 simply goes one step further to show this truth. And for all that and more, the purpose of our salvation here is to declare the praises of God. To speak about him. To let others know. To say how brilliant he is as a precious cornerstone. But practically, how do we do that? And this takes us to those last two verses. We're going to look at these again next week and probably the week after because I think they're really, really helpful. But second application, how do we do that? Well, we live as aliens for the glory of God. Aliens and strangers, it says here. And we see what we need to do. We need to abstain and we need to live, as we mentioned right at the beginning. So we're not fundamental, as you would stereotype, as you caricature fundamental religious groups that is you know we're not separate from society with kind of exclusive beliefs in that way but we're not also liberal that is blending into the culture around us with no kind of doctrinal requirements at all just say yeah yeah, I'll do whatever I want no we're not like that but biblical Christians are not fundamentals in that way and we're not liberals in that way Both of those groups are motivated by two things, obtaining power and avoidance of suffering. But the Bible says you are neither to be fundamentals or liberals. We're to be aliens and strangers, we're called here. Which is essentially, hear me right here, it's like being a fundamental liberal. Let me explain why. See, like the fundamental religions of the world, we, we do have exclusive beliefs which sometimes aren't very popular, as we've seen in the news recently. 
But we want to be part of the culture in which we live. We want to contribute to the culture in which we live. So we are like liberals in that way. We want to integrate into society. We want to kind of be part of you know, social groups and, and getting involved and so on. That is why the term alien literally means resident alien here. There is a permanence to our alien status whilst we live on this earth. But unlike the liberals, we have a doctrinal framework which we want to live by. A moral, ethical framework which is shown and demonstrated to us by God through his word and brought to us through his spirit. We are aliens and strangers, which is essentially a liberal fundamental. Fundamentalist, if that's the word. And it means we should expect these two responses. People who accuse us of doing wrong, they won't like what we say about our doctrine. Very often, and we've seen that in the news recently. But people ought to recognise our good deeds, as we see in verse 12. Let me conclude, and we're going to look at that passage later in two weeks' time. Let me conclude, though, in saying this. There was much debate in the Roman world um, about the cultural benefits of Christians. And you see, when, when these exclusive views were made known into this Roman culture, which Peter is writing here, uh, when they saw what the Bible taught about, taught about ethics and, and morals and so on, it was assumed by the Roman uh, world that this would lead to kind of a, a withdrawing of Christians, a kind of a separatist view and way of living. Uh, and that would lead as well to kind of a, a, a poor involvement in society. Basically, the Romans said this could be bad for the economy. But what did the Romans actually experience? Now, despite the exclusive opinions and doctrines of the, of the Christians, they lived a far more inclusive life than most in the culture. They were more loving. They were more accepting. That they gave more to the poor than any people group, even the Romans itself. Themselves, sorry. But the problem is, the Romans knew it, and many people know it. Fundamental religious beliefs generally lead to kind of terror and death very often. The Romans knew that because they were doing that themselves to a great degree. And certainly in recent history, you see people like Stalin with his religious views, that is, atheism. He was, more, he was responsible for more deaths from, in his reign from 19-whatever-it-was to end of the Second World War than all of the wars propagated by Christians and any religious group in the 2,000 years before. Fundamental religion, you see, leads to death and terror. Therefore, the Romans were just utterly terrified of what the Christians were going to do. They thought they would detach from culture. They thought they would damage the economy. But what happened? The complete opposite. Why? Because it all depends on what your fundamentals are. You see, if your fundamentals uh, well, I want you to cast your eyes down to verse 22 of our passage. Tim's going to be looking at this next week. See, if your fundamentals are a man who committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth, and when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. If that is our fundamental. Well, 
We have these, we have these exclusive fundamental views. And therefore we are called to abstain from some things in our culture, to honour and recognise our Saviour, who we just looked at. But as a result, we should expect hostility. That, well, that's what we've seen here in the passage today. But also we need to see, we need to get close enough to the people in our culture so that they might see the fundamentals of our faith. That is, that they, miss, they might see the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we see in verse 12, that they might want to glory in our good deeds and glorify Christ in his return. See, we're not to be separate from this world. And nor should we attack this world. We're to be the living church of Jesus Christ in this world for his glory. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, it's very difficult to be an alien and stranger. We want to fit in all the time. But we recognise that you have called us, you have saved us through your Son's death, Jesus, on the cross, who bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we may die to sin and live for righteousness. Heavenly Father, as a result, we are these aliens and strangers. We live for a different king, awaiting a new kingdom. And that is tough. You call us to abstain from life of this world and live according to the kingdom of which we are part of, the kingdom of heaven. And we know that that life causes all sorts of friction. People accuse us of doing wrong, thinking differently to them. Very often the views of Christians, biblical views of Christians, are mocked in our culture. We know that that's going to be difficult for us. But help us to live that people might see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We cannot do this in our own strength. So thank you, Heavenly Father, for our precious cornerstone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.